Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about the stuff that shapes who we are and how to make positive changes stick. My first guest is Wendy Wood. She is the author of Good Habits, Bad Habits, The Science of Making Positive Changes That Stick. Wendy has devoted the last 30 years to understanding how habits work. She is Provost Professor of Psychology and Business at the University of Southern California, where she also served as Vice Dean of Social Sciences. Wendy recently launched the website goodhabitsbadhabits.org to convey scientific insight on habits to the general public. Wendy, first, I want to say welcome to the show. And secondly, I want to thank you for writing this book. <laughs> it's great. Oh, that's very kind of you, Lisa. And thank you for having me on. Oh, well, it's a pleasure. I mean, ha- habits are hard. Breaking bad habits are hard. Adapting new, good, healthy ones are also hard. Talk about how much time do we spend in automation versus consciously making decisions? In other words, how do habits actually work? Yeah, so we often think of habits as specific behaviors like, oh, brushing our teeth. We all have a toothbrushing habit or something like making coffee in the morning. Many of us have a coffee habit. The research that I've done shows that a lot of our behavior is habitual. And in fact, habits don't really refer to any specific behavior. It's more how you do things, not so much what you're doing. So almost anything can become a habit. And when we've estimated, when we've collected data from people in daily lives, we've had them pinged every hour and they tell us what they're doing and what they're thinking about, we find that about 43% of our daily activities, our habits, in the sense that we're doing them repeatedly in the same location, and we're usually thinking about something else. So we're sort of on autopilot. Ah, So that's the definer, so the automation of it. Exactly. And that's what makes habits so useful, is they're really efficient. In a way, they're, they're shortcuts, they're mental shortcuts, that we use when we're in familiar situations, we just do what we've done before and we get what we've gotten before. So that's why habits are so useful to us. Are they also a form of economizing mental muscle? Yes. So while you're not thinking about your habit, what you're probably doing is, you're solving other problems in your life or you might be ruminating over something that happened, you're planning. It frees our mind to focus on the things that are more important and then we can just go ahead and accomplish all of the things that we do every day. But what you describe are habits, good habits in their best light. What about the other side of the coin? Like I'm thinking of our connection to our mobile devices, which we habitually look at, uh, check incessantly, and how much of that is actually productive and healthy? Great question. Good habits and bad habits form in just the same way. From a habit perspective, it's really just automated responses. Things you do 
things you repeat without thinking much about it. What makes things good or bad is how well the behavior actually meets our goals. And, And you can see bad habits. Your example with phones is great because if you get a cell phone just starting off with, it's actually very helpful to stay in touch with people and see photographs of our friends, to search on Google for knowledge, information that we need. There's all kinds of wonderful things that happen on the phone. So that's a, in a sense, it's a good habit to have. The problem is, is that the phones are designed in ways that make them quite addictive. So they turn what could be a good habit into something that becomes a disruption in our lives and something that we need to control. I was just going to jump in and add that in your book, Good Habits, Bad Habits, you talk about the average American hits up their phone 46 times a day. Exactly. 46 (laughs) times a day, 46 times a day of anything. It's not good. No, it's not. And particularly with phone use, because it just drags you in immediately. So you stop responding to what's going on around you. The way that happens is that your phone is using rewards intermittently. So Most of the time when you check your phone, you just see garbage or things that just aren't useful or you're not learning anything. But every once in a while, you get that kernel of really useful information or this great news. You you find something that is rewarding to you. And that intermittent reward is what keeps us checking. It's sort of like playing the slot machines. Yeah. You get rewarded only every once in a while, and it's very addictive. And the hope, the hope of the win is what keeps us returning to that well. Exactly. You mentioned in Good Habits, Bad Habits that 43% of our behavior on any given day is performed habitually. And you made reference to it earlier about the daily hygiene tasks and a lot of these being habitual. Talk about the opposite of these active types of habits, but passive habits that we might be doing and not even realizing. Well, I think all habits are active in the sense that they're responses. So habits are shortcuts. They're mental shortcuts about what to do in a given situation that you've done before and has been successful. Aha. Uh-huh. So habits are actions that you take. Now, almost any behavior can become a habit. And you can think of probably some very obvious ones. Coffee, as I mentioned before, you mentioned cell phone use. Eating is habitual for most of us. We eat at the same times of day, particularly breakfast. We tend to eat the same things No matter what we ate the night before, we tend to eat the same thing for breakfast. These are shortcuts. These are streamlined ways of responding in our environment that work for us. Well, you you mentioned habits such as resting, relaxing, and sitting on the couch, that many of these are habits. But for many of us, they are not programmed into the operating system, unfortunately. I do think that for many of us, actually sitting on the couch is pretty well programmed. I think the problem is, for most of us, is getting enough exercise. We come home from work and we're tired and we just have a habit of sitting on the couch and we relax. And once we start doing that, it gets very hard to get up and get ourselves to the gym or to the yoga studio. Uh-huh. So, so for many of us, those sort of relaxation times in the day are in fact programmed in and we should be, the doctors tell us, we should all be walking more. We should all be 
exercising more. And part of the challenge, you start to understand once you follow habit research, that part of the challenge is figuring out how to change the habits that we formed. So say you have a habit, I have had this habit of eating donuts from the vending machine at work at lunch. Oh, say it isn't so. (laughs) The first couple times you do it, it's actually good, right? You're doing it because you don't have much time, you're hungry, you need to eat something quickly and get back to work. And so it is sufficient. You do it a few times and your health starts to be challenged. So what was rewarding and a good habit, a good behavior to begin with, can over time become a bad habit if you repeat it often enough. It's not good for your health. I want to go back to what we were talking about prior about the passive habits, you know, resting, relaxing, and sitting on the couch. I actually was thinking of people who have find it difficult to relax, for people who find it difficult to power down, that it's not natural for them. And Because I, I heard your hesitation when you responded, and then I put myself in your shoes and what you were trying to say, and I'm like, yes, I understand that. But for many of us, it's hard, it is hard to place value on rest is a good habit, even though we know it's good for us. Well, certain types of rest, absolutely. Yeah. We go to bed and we take our cell phones with us and we check our cell phones or we stay on our computer screens in bed. So we're not getting that sort of downtime, an opportunity to rest, really relax that we need to. Yeah. Part of what you start to realize with this area of research is that in order to meet your goals, willpower, self-control is not the issue. Instead, it's figuring out how to organize your environment so that you are better able to meet your goals without having to rely on willpower and motivation. Because our willpower isn't going to last long enough for us to meet long-term goals. None of us have that level of willpower. Instead, when you observe people who are successful, say at going to the gym at each day and then also relaxing each day without screens and phones, really, or that have a meditation habit, these are people who aren't struggling Instead, they've set up their environment to make it easier to do the behavior. They found things they like, and they've effectively formed habits that meet their goals and let them do so without struggling, without the sort of the white knuckling through that all of us expect to have to do. Yeah. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Wendy Wood. We're talking about her book, Good Habits, Bad Habits, The Science of Making Positive Changes That Stick. To learn more about Professor Wood, uh, please visit goodhabitsbadhabits.org. On Twitter, she is at Prof. Wendy Wood, and on Facebook, that page is Good Habits, Bad Habits. We'll be right back, and that is a good habit. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about the stuff that shapes who we are and how to make positive changes stick. My guest is Wendy Wood. Let's rejoin the conversation. So Wendy, prior to the break, we were talking about how we use our smartphones. We're talking about how habits serve to streamline and make us more efficient. Let's talk about how we make new habits happen, because it used to be thought of that habits were adopted over a period of a short number of weeks. But the research and what you share in good habits, bad habits indicate otherwise. Yes. Many people have heard that it only takes 21 days to form a habit. And that would be lovely 
if that were true. Unfortunately, habit learning typically takes a little bit longer. A collaborator of mine showed that learning a simple habit can take up to 66 days of repeating the same behavior in order for it to become automated, which is a little bit longer than we'd want. But there's good news there too, which is that if you fall off and don't do it for a few days, that habit memory is still there and ready to pick up when you are. So even if you lapse, you are back to learning your new habit as soon as you get back to the gym or start meditating again or start eating right, you can pick up the habit essentially where you left off. And you mentioned that exercise, you know, adapting a healthy exercise regime can take even a little bit longer. Yes, because complex behaviors, habits are a learning mechanism. And complex things just take longer to learn. So behaviors that have steps, a number of steps to them, like going to the gym, would take longer to learn than a simpler behavior like just drinking a glass of water every few hours. It just makes sense that things that are harder to learn will take us a bit longer. And you also mentioned one of the best ways to start a new habit is to stack the action into another habit. So bundling, right? Yeah. We already do this. If you are taking pills and you are trying to stick to medication once a day, most people would just naturally put the pill bottle by their bed or maybe by their toothbrush. And what they're doing is they are using the automaticity that they already have established going to bed, their routine, brushing their teeth, that routine, and they're adding in taking medication. And there's good evidence that people who do this, who stack a new habit like taking a pill onto existing habits, are more successful. They remember it better. How much of what we do with our habits is the ritualization of that habit helpful in making it stick? And I, I'm thinking of, uh, let's say, exercise, for example, that we have sort of a ritual and how we perform the exercise that makes us feel good because of the endorphin release that we get from it, which then draws us into wanting to do it again. Is that part of the equation, that the ritual of it is helpful? Well, one part of what you said, the endorphins and the good feeling you get, that's really important for forming habits. You're not going to form a habit very easily for something that you don't enjoy doing. So if exercise gives you that endorphin feeling and if you feel pride and you feel good when you do it, then you're more likely to form a habit. There, there has been research showing that people who go to the gym but go because they feel guilty or they should go, they don't easily form habits. It's the ones who like what they're doing who form habits more readily. So reward is a big piece of habit formation. And you might say, well, I hate to exercise. <laughs> I can't stand it. Um, it's never going to be fun for me. But there are things you can do to make it more interesting, like maybe find a friend to work out with who you like to be around or listening to interesting podcasts while you're working out. That can be another way to make it more enjoyable. And if you just hate going to the gym and there's nothing you can do to make it fun, then don't do that. Go for a walk. Take your dog for a walk. Find something else to do. Find a good Zumba class. Um, there's many different things that you can do to meet a particular goal. And finding the thing you enjoy is what's going to help you to form a habit. How much of habit formation also requires good self-regulation and some uh, emotional rigor, you know? 
Well, most people think that that is what is required to form a habit. We think that to take obesity, that the reason why people are overweight is because they just don't have any self-control. And in fact, even obese people think that. Even though they keep trying and trying to lose weight, in one study, over 80% of obese people thought they lacked self-control. Even though some people had tried to lose weight 20 or more times, which takes huge amounts of self-control. What research on habit learning and habit memory shows is that self-control is not what's critical here. Let me tell you a story. I went up to the Culinary Institute of America in Napa Valley and attended their cooking classes for about a week. And that was great fun. It was interesting to watch the the beginning chefs. When they started, the first day they started, they wanted to jump in and start cooking. It's just like all of us. When we want to change our behavior, we want to jump in and do it and make it happen. But what they were taught was something called mise en place, which is French for put in place. And they had to learn that they needed to set up the kitchen to make it possible for them to keep producing the same recipe and the same food over and over to a high quality. So they do the chopping ahead of time, they put out all of their utensils, they measure everything out before they even start. And that's actually a good metaphor for how successful people meet their goals. They set up the environment around them so that it's easy, so that they can do it without exerting willpower and a lot of self-control. It makes it easy to automate the behavior, and it makes it easy to repeat over and over again. Which eliminates stress, right? Which really speaks to how habits are stress-resistant. That's another, that's an, another point in the book, that once we have automated good behaviors, Behaviors like going to the gym or like going to yoga, behaviors like reading to your kids every night before they go to bed. Once we've automated those, they are resistant to stress. They become what you do when you're preoccupied with other challenges in your life. We have done research where we looked at people under stress and we find that they are even more likely to act on their good habits when stressed than they are when they're not stressed. Because once they stop thinking, they're not thinking about alternatives. They're not thinking about other things they could do. Instead, they're just responding and their responses happen to be really good habits. Yeah. Which allows us to manage when things become more challenging to balance those stressors and recalibrate and bounce back. Exactly. It's a wonderful coping mechanism. If you have the right habits, then you can continue on with a reasonably healthy life, productive life, even when you're under stress. Wendy Wood. Thanks for sharing insight into the how of our humanness uh, through your book, Good Habits, Bad Habits, The Science of Making Positive Changes That Stick. To learn more about Professor Wendy Wood and her work, please visit goodhabitsbadhabits.org, on Twitter at Prof. Wendy Wood, and on Facebook, that page is Good Habits, Bad Habits. And thank you so much for sharing the wealth of your knowledge with us. Oh, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you, Lisa. Likewise. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration.
Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about the stuff that shapes who we are and how to make positive changes stick. My next guest is Bill Sullivan. He received his doctorate in cell and molecular biology from the University of Pennsylvania and is an award-winning professor at the Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis, where he studied genetics and infectious disease. He's also the author of Please to Meet Me, Genes, Germs, and the Curious Forces that Make Us Who We Are. And I have to give a little plug, Bill, because when I received this book, when it, I, I got two copies and I was like, oh yeah, this is right in the wheelhouse of what I'm really interested in. I also shared a copy, the second copy with my 94 year old aunt who absolutely fell in love with the book. So you've got the gamut of age groups that are really enjoying this book. And let's talk about the real you or the real me or the real us. Well, thank you so much for those kind comments about the book, and I appreciate everyone in your family uh, enjoying it, Lisa. (laughs) So as you can maybe surmise from the title, the book is called Please to Meet Me, and it's basically a reintroduction of yourself. And what I wanted to get at here were the biological roots of why we do the things we do. Because I, like many other people, can rattle off several weird things that I can't figure out about myself, why I do certain things or why I hate certain foods. So I wanted to understand what is the biology behind this. And I uncovered four different, at least four different, what I call hidden forces that underlie some of our behaviors. And what are those four hidden forces? As most people are aware, genes are definitely involved. So our DNA, it's inescapable. They have a role. Most people appreciate that they build our physical traits like eye color and whether you can curl your tongue or things like that. But what I found in my research for this book was that genes have far-reaching effects into our personality and behavior. So we can expand on that. Epigenetics is the other hidden force, and this is really intimately related to the genes. So genes were thought to be on-off switches for a long time. But epigenetics tells us that they're more like dimmer switches or volume knobs. And what controls the volume is our environment. And this is a really critical hidden force to uncover because it demonstrates how critical the environment is to bringing out what sort of person you're going to be. The third hidden force is our microbiome. So believe it or not, these tiny little creatures that infiltrate mostly our our gut, our intestines, you wouldn't expect them to have any sort of role in our personality or behavior. How could they? They're just little microbes in our gut. But scientists are finding that they produce substances that can profoundly affect our moods and how we feel and how we behave. And then the final one is our subconscious. Our brain, of course, is this marvelous organ, but it's not perfection. It is subjective. It is subject to subliminal priming. And it's, of course, haunted by the evolutionary ghosts of our past. So those, in a nutshell, are the four hidden forces that often work together in very sophisticated ways to bring about the diverse behavior that you see in many people. In Please to Meet Me, you write about what our DNA reveals about how we vote and whether we lean liberal or conservative. I find this fascinating. Talk a little bit about that. This is fascinating and was one of the biggest surprises that I came across because if you think you have any sort of rational decision making in your life, it's going to be in the political arena. Many people take their political feelings very personally and they in fact identify with them. But there is evidence that this stems out of our biology, and there's actually good evolutionary reasons for why there should be conservatives on the far right and liberals on the far left, and then a whole slew of people in the middle. It's really good for the population to have a mix of different opinions. So let's talk about that biology real briefly. There is this new field of science called genopolitics, 
which is examining people who are on the far right or the far left. So we're, the caveat to these studies are we're looking at people on the extremes. But then scientists look at their entire genome sequence. So they study all of their genes to see what they have in common and, more importantly, what they don't have in common. So at a genetic level, it turns out that liberal thinkers who tend to be more risk-taking, novelty-seeking, and exploratory, they have a variation in the dopamine system in their brain. So there are genes that encode for this neurotransmitter called dopamine, and it has been study after study. It's been linked to whether you're averse to risk-taking or whether you exhibit exploratory behavior. So that's a real defining difference in personality between people who are on the extreme right or left that lies right within our genes. Wow. I think it's fair to say that we are all heat-seeking missiles when it comes to pleasure. So there are plenty of conservatives that love dopamine just as much as their liberal counterparts. But I think what you're saying is the means in which we seek to release it. Uh, Yes, you're absolutely right. There's no question that there's a spectrum of activity. And I, in fact, specify in the book that I know several Republicans who love to bungee jump and do all these yeah. uh, other sorts of things. <laughs> so these these types of studies are generalizations that try to give us a photo of what the average looks like. There's going to be exceptions. There's going to be outliers. You see that in every scientific study. But it also underscores an important point that genes aren't everything. Uh, it's a bedrock. It's a it's a variable in the equation. So another really interesting thing that I found in the research for the book were differences in our brain structures, which of course genes help to build, but then can adapt based on a person's experiences. So in one study, researchers could look at a brain scan of a person, and they could predict with almost seventy five percent accuracy whether that person was a liberal or a conservative, just by looking at their brain scan. Okay, okay. hang on a second, because what comes to mind is a swollen empathy gland for the the liberal, and I don't know that there's really a location of that in the brain. (laughs) Well, what they did find was that the conservatives tend to have a larger amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain. Ah. Liberals tend to have a larger anterior singular cortex, which, that's a mouthful, but in, in simplistic terms, it's a more analytical part of the brain. It's kind of detached from emotion and analyzes facts objectively. And this, this is not to say one is better than the other. This makes conservatives, you could argue, very good at threat detection. Yeah. And liberals very good at threat evaluation. So in a perfect world, conservatives and liberals would engage in civil, respectful dialogue to evaluate threats together and decide whether and how to proceed accordingly. Let's just say a little prayer for that (laughs) and move on. (laughs) It's my hope for the world. Me too. (laughs) It sounds, it's like a cliche, but you know, um, united we stand, divided we fall. And we're currently not taking advantage of one another's strengths. And celebrating the differences. Exactly. Yeah. Let's talk about this one just really uh, put a smile on my face. Why women who ate more fish during pregnancy had children with higher IQ scores. Very interesting study. And it also underscores just how critical mom's diet is to ensuring a healthy child. Um, We'll talk about fish in a second. But what we are finding is this concept called fetal programming or prenatal programming. And this harks back to the epigenetics that I mentioned earlier. And this is a process by which, you know, the fetus gets DNA from mom and dad. So the chromosomes are set, but which genes get switched on and off or somewhere in between is governed by mom's environment. And what biology is trying to do is turn on genes or turn off genes that kind of preset the fetal DNA to be prepared for mom's environment. So where this fish thing comes in, studies have been done that have shown that fish, when they're consumed by pregnant women, this was a 2007 study, I believe, women who ate more fish while pregnant had children with better social development and better IQ scores. And the reason why scientists hypothesize is due to the enrichment of omega-3 fatty acids in the fish, which those are the good kind of fatty acids. Brain food. 
brain food. And that's yeah. obviously a, a critical period of development, both in the womb and in early childhood. The brain is actually developing well into um, our early 20s. But it's really critical to get those omega-3 fatty acids so the brain can actually grow and make the connections that it needs to do. You know, what's interesting is I mentioned to you before we got started with our interview is that during one of my pregnancies, one of my children, I was craving fish all the time through that pregnancy. And you said, well, I wonder what it was that the child was wanting, right? The kid was wanting. I mean, which, which comes first? You know, is it that mom assumes that diet or mom is called to eat that food? There's a number of variables that could be attributing that. There, there's certainly um, chemicals that can be admitted by the fetus that could drive certain cravings or the, the compulsion to eat foods that have a certain ingredient, like maybe a lot of salt or the fatty acids, because both of those are fairly critical to brain development and neurological signaling. But, you know, whatever your body might be deficient in, in terms of that stage of pregnancy, maybe you need a little more sugars or fats or protein. And uh, there could be a there could feasibly be a system whereby the fetus is somehow communicating that um, to the mind uh, of the mother, so she will eat accordingly. But then we also have to consider the microbiome, which we haven't talked about too much yet. Uh, that's omnipresent, whether you're pregnant or not. And there's very good evidence that these tiny little microbes, trillions and trillions of them that live in our gut, produce substances that can drive our food cravings to actually supply the types of bacteria that live in your gut with the foods and ingredients they need to live. Yeah, and, and that is the new frontier of psychobiotics, isn't it, as well? That, that's right. Uh, Scott Anderson has written a book on that not long ago describing what he called the psychobiotic revolution. And this is the appreciation that these trillions of microbes that live in our gut are governing some of our cravings and the volume of appetite that we eat, the types of foods that we go after. We're basically not eating for ourselves per se, but eating for these microbes in our gut. Yeah. Well, this is the second brain. The right? second brain. And that's a really good analogy because um, it's been estimated that you have about three pounds worth of bacteria in your gut which is very close to the weight of the brain. Um, let's talk about the experience of trauma and poverty, not necessarily in our own lives, but in our family lineage. In other words, let's say we have a grandparent who has endured trauma, who has gone to war, uh, survived war, a Holocaust survivor, for example, and how that affects us presently. This is a wonderful yet controversial subject. Yeah. The topic is called transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. And I, I'm sorry, that's a mouthful. But basically what this concept means is that there are things in the environment that a person is exposed to, whether it be food deprivation, trauma of some kind, or what have you, but it changes the DNA in some way, not at the sequence level, Epigenetics doesn't mutate DNA, but it chemically modifies DNA or the proteins associated with DNA in a manner that affects gene activation. So like I said before, it can kind of tweak the volume knobs of your chromosomes and the genes within. So that's what the epigenetic component is. And these experiences that one person is exposed to get recorded in a way on the DNA. So, so the concept argues is that those recordings can also get passed to yeah. the next generation. And I can give you an example of that if you like. I do, but we need to jump off to a break. And when we come back, I would love to have you share those examples and even more. Let's go to break. To learn more about Bill Sullivan's work, please visit authorbillsullivan.com. On Twitter, he's at WJ Sullivan. On Facebook, Bill dot Sullivan Jr. and on Instagram, WJ Sullivan Jr. The book we're talking about today is Pleased to Meet Me, Genes, Germs, and the Curious Forces That Make Us Who We Are. This is a great read, and I really encourage our listeners to go out and get the book. Let's jump off. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. 
Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Discussing the stuff that shapes who we are and how to make positive changes that stick. Let's rejoin the conversation with Bill Sullivan. Bill, prior to the break, we were talking about experiences in our relatives and ancestors that are passed on to us through our DNA. The experiences of trauma is what I really want to emphasize here. Right. So here we're getting back into transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, a fascinating new concept that's right at the cutting edge of biology. A lot of this was precipitated in studies done in mice. So I'm going to give you a little example of a fascinating study that introduced us to this concept that took place in mice. And then I'll give you a human example of where it may be occurring as well. So mice, in case you didn't know, they love the smell of cherries, just like we do. And, um, what scientists did was they took some mice and they took some cherries and they gave them a little shock when they were exposed to the cherry scent. So over a little bit of time, these mice started to develop a phobia of cherries. They did not like the smell anymore. They were afraid of the smell. So when they mate these mice and they produce offspring, at great surprise to the scientists, their pups, their mouse pups, came out afraid of cherries. So this is an experience. You know, this, is a, this is a brand new behavior yeah. that these mice seem to inherit. And according to Darwinian's evolution, this sort of thing should not be happening. This is a really interesting twist on what Darwin was trying to convey. But the real surprise, if, if that wasn't crazy enough, was that the children of those children were still afraid of cherries. So you're talking about the grandchildren here, you know, a multi-generational effect of this learned behavior to be afraid of cherries. Even when the children and the grandchildren were never shocked or they never saw their parents get shocked, they still had this innate fear of cherries just because their grandfather was exposed to it. That is amazing. It's really um, phenomenal. And it has opened up the floodgates of research into trying to figure out what the biological mechanism is behind this. Because we know that this doesn't apply to all behaviors. For example, how wonderful would it be if our babies came out already potty trained? <laughs> that, would, that would have been wonderful. Like a kitten. Right. Or, or knowing how to play the piano. You know, like yeah. if, if mom knows how to play the piano, why doesn't the kid? So we're not talking about elaborate and sophisticated behaviors. We're talking about really maybe some, you know, very simplistic ones. But the effect is very real. And they've recapitulated this experiment in, with other behaviors in mice. And the transgenerational effect eventually does go away. It takes about three to five generations before it reverts back to the baseline. So if you're thinking in evolutionary terms, this is a wonderful solution that nature has worked out to get offspring to respond very quickly to an adverse event in the environment. And then if that adverse event in the environment goes away, then their epigenetics eventually go away too, and they revert back to their previous state. So does this exist in humans? This is where it gets controversial because we can't do these sorts of experiments in humans. So we can't like get that nail in the coffin, so to speak, to really give a smoking gun of what's happening. So, But we can look to historical records. Well, I want to just jump in and ask a question about that, because something that popped into my mind as you were describing it is when we look at substance abuse and sort of the maladaptive response to stress and trauma, is there some correlation in that? There certainly is. And it was always thought to be possibly a genetic driver, something on the genetic code. And that's still quite possible, and it could be a combination of things. But there is good evidence these days that 
even in fathers-to-be who are smoking or doing hard drugs, the DNA in their sperm gets altered at the epigenetic level. Yeah. So that then, well, that says a number of things. First of all, that it's possible that these sorts of adverse behaviors can be passed on through modifications in the sperm, but it also makes dad more culpable for some of these events. And it doesn't, it means that not only does mom have to take good care of her body, but so does the dad to be. So junk food diets, smoking, cocaine, these are all things that come to mind that can change the epigenetic modifications on sperm and potentially have an effect on how the baby's genes are going to be tweaked. Yeah, this is really fascinating to me. Going back to World War II survivors and how that affected the family lineage. Talk a little bit about that. During World War II, there was a German blockade of the Netherlands that caused the hunger famine. Tens of thousands of people were starving, uh, living on like 400 calories a day. It was a really awful famine. So it turns out that mothers who were starved during their pregnancy, who were involved in this famine, they had children who grew up with higher rates of obesity and diabetes, which might seem counterintuitive because these children were in the womb during this famine. So what scientists have found is going on is that their genome, their DNA, was epigenetically programmed to equip themselves to survive a famine because the fetus was expecting to be born into a famine. So the DNA was being optimized to extract the maximum amount of calories from food that's possible. Mm. But of course, the famine ended. And now we have a bunch of babies born that have an extremely thrifty genotype, which means they just extract calories from food like crazy. But we have plenty of food today, and it's um, unfortunately packed with lots of salt, fat, and sugar, and that is why they're now at risk of obesity and diabetes. So it's a maladaptive response because the environment changed. I want to ask you why it's so hard to convince others to change their minds. You know, it's change comes as at a hard price for many of us. And why is that so? Changing is a difficult thing. There's a whole chapter I, I describe in the book. It's called Meet Your Mind. And it basically educates you about your brain. It is a marvelous organ. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's what made our species so successful. And it's what gives us both the best of both worlds with regard to the arts and the sciences. But it's got flaws. Uh, it's an evolutionarily designed product, and it's not optimized. Um, it's continually evolving. And in fact, I called it a diva, and <laughs> there's reasons for that. So I refer to the brain as a diva because, one, it wants all the attention. It, it steals all of your energy, okay? It takes 20% of your daily caloric intake just to keep the brain turned on, nah. okay? Really? N it, really. Just it's to keep the, the pilot light ignited. <laughs> just to keep the pilot light going, okay? Just to sit and watch TV, 20% of your daily caloric intake goes straight to your brain just to keep that minimal level of functioning going. So when you're really using your head, you know, you're using even more of your caloric intake. And that's why thinking usually increases your appetite because your, your, your brain is hogging all this attention. It's hogging all your energy. So it's a diva in that regard, but it's also a diva in thinking that it's right all the time. And it relates to the energy that it sequesters from the body. Since it is such an energy hog, the brain has to take shortcuts and make assumptions all the time. Uh -huh. And this is why we have an innate tendency to stereotype and to pigeonhole people and to generalize not only people but topics and things. We hate being wrong because it requires us to think, which requires us to use energy. And in our evolutionary past, that was not something we wanted to do very often because energy was hard to come by. Ah, so it's kind of like the sea change of a ship, right? That the amount of energy required to turn the direction of the ship is immense. And that's what makes the change so challenging for, for the human mind. 
That's actually a brilliant analogy. I really like that because your your brain is just kind of like a rock I mean, for most people. And it's going to take a little while to drill down through that cement in order to change minds. It certainly is possible. We've all seen people do it. Maybe we've done it ourselves. But it's rare that it happens overnight or through one specific uh, circumstance. It takes time. And that's why we need to cultivate an atmosphere of understanding one another, empathy towards one another, and patience with yes. one another. Patience, 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 patience. We're almost out of time. I, I want to just share a funny story about that. That I'm, I recently am in the process, I am in the process of building a home and we had to put in a well. And when we went 350 feet deep, and when we turned on the spout, the most nasty water came out of that well. I mean, oh, no. like the, like the, uh, the, the honey, I think we need to have this tested kind of water. Right. And, um, after running it for several days, you know, running it and, and letting it, you know, clear, the water became clear and drinkable. And that is about sort of that, that patience of the human experience. We want what we want. The human mind wants it right away, right? Because mm -hmm. we want the satisfaction. And, but yet we have to be willing to have some skin in the game and invest in, um, the repetition and practice of patience. A absolutely. And uh, there's another analogy I like to draw from an old Seinfeld episode where they, they likened breaking up with someone like toppling down a Coke machine. It, it, <laughs> it, it doesn't take one swift movement. You got to kind of rock it back and forth to get some momentum going, and then it finally topples over. But that's how it is when you try to talk to people who have very different beliefs than you do. You, you shouldn't go into it with ego and uh, an expectation that you're going to change minds on the spot. You need to go into it open-minded, uh, like you said before, patient. And to draw on your analogy, you just... Um, keep the water running yeah. and then hope that it clarifies. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Dr. Bill Sullivan, come hang out with me again because I, I want to talk with you more. I love this book. Please to meet me. Genes, germs, and the curious forces that make us who we are. To learn more about Bill Sullivan's work, please visit authorbillsullivan.com. On Twitter, he can be found at WJ Sullivan. And on Facebook is Bill.SullivanJR. And on Instagram, WJ Sullivan JR. Bill, thank you so much. Will you come back? I would love to come back. There's so much more in the book. We so could much more. So much more. And this is just the, the tip of the iceberg. But we got to go. Here comes the break. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Wendy Wood and Bill Sullivan, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.